Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I am Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict, and I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Dr. Jolie Hamilton. She is a relationship coach for couples who color outside the lines. She's a research psychologist, TEDx speaker, ASEC certified sex educator. Jolie is also the author of the best-selling book, Project Relationship, the Entrepreneur's Action Plan for Passionate, Sustainable Love. She has spent the past two decades studying and reimagining what love can be if we open our imaginations to possibility. Jolie helps people create partnerships that are custom-built for their authentic selves, no more shrinking, pretending, or hiding required. Welcome, Dr. Jolie Hamilton. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Catherine. It's a pleasure. So tell us how it is that you ended up in this field and what's your own personal journey to do what you do? Yeah, so I got in this field actually because of a divorce. I had been coaching people in different realms for a long time, but when my own life fell apart, (laughs) I had to learn the hard way that there aren't enough people out there helping us have conversations about wanting change in our relationships and not necessarily traditional change. My divorce came about because I wanted non-monogamy and my husband didn't, it turned out. That's okay, but we didn't know how to have the conversations around it. We didn't know how to be reasonable and respectful to each other about it. And that led to a whole lot of heartache. And that is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about helping other people do this better. You know, it's so interesting you use the word conversation, and that does sound like a really hard conversation, right? I mean, it must feel mm-hmm. or potentially feel to the to the person hearing it, right, that I want to have a, a non-monogamous relationship, that somehow that's a failure, at least the way we traditionally think about marriage. Is that, is that a mistake or is that how people take it sometimes? I think that's exactly how people can hear it. And there's the thing, I went into, <laughs> I went into it with that wide-eyed optimism that comes with new feelings of love and expansiveness, that's not where my partner was at the time. So yeah, I walked into a conversation thinking, hey, we're just going to talk. It's going to be fine. We don't have to change anything overnight. It'll be fine. He felt blindsided, confused. It was really tumultuous for him. And Of course, it felt like there was a failure because we had been in a monogamous relationship since we were 16 years old. We didn't know anything else. 17 years later, I spring this on him, and it's not surprising that he was shocked. Oh, it's not. The surprise is that really my optimism that he wouldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so if you were going to do that conversation today, I mean, given what you know and what you what your research has shown you and all of that, what would you do differently besides the, you know, naive not optimism and sort of wide-eyed yeah. hope that you went in with? Yeah, I do two big things differently. One is if I could really, if I had that time machine, I would go back and get help 
in our original marriage, I would get help years before. You know, the most common thing I hear from marriage counselors is people show up when it's a little too late, when somebody has one foot out the door already. And so I would have gotten help a long time before because there were signs that we were not compatible and that we were actually hurting each other a lot. And if we'd gotten some help around that, it's possible that this never would have come up or it's possible that when it did, I would have known to do the second thing I would do is start a conversation when the very first inklings started to arise, like when the first idea before there were any actual literal people in mind that I might have wanted to point this attention at. Once there are real people involved, it becomes very personal versus just an idea, an experiment, a talk. How are we going to talk about what monogamy or non-monogamy could work for us? So that's what I would do differently. I think that both of those things are really, really smart things. I mean, I also hear, being in the divorce law world, right, from marriage counselors, that people come to marriage counseling and give it too little and it's too late. And, yep. and so oftentimes marriage counseling fails. And and it's so interesting because it's like, well, if we're going to marriage counseling, there's something wrong, right? Yeah. Instead of like thinking of it as like going to the doctor for a checkup or yeah. having your teeth cleaned, you know, or something that we just think of as just regular maintenance. Because sometimes these conversations are really, really hard, whether or not they're about monogamy or other things. It can be about money or working or debt or anything that is oh, yeah. just a hard conversation to have. Yeah, and I specialize in hard conversations now because it turned out that I have a superpower of not really being able to be embarrassed by sticky subjects. Great, cool. Not everybody feels that way. When we show up into a room and we try to have a hard conversation and there's already been so much hurt behind it, that that just doubles up or triples or quadruples the pain in the room. And that's where I think counselors are asked to bear a huge burden of trying to fix something rather than do, as you said, some regular maintenance. You know, for instance, in my relationship now, my primary relationship, we revisit our relationship agreement every year. And every three years, we do a full weekend where we work through our whole agreement. And there's a real off-road. Like, we could take an off-ramp in our relationship. That kind of maintenance keeps our relationship both fresh and flexible to meet our ongoing changing needs. So I could think, Julie Hamilton, that people listening to that think, well, that's really scary if we're going to open, unlock the door. And I remember years ago, there was a show called uh, Love American Style. And for some reason, the, the episode that I'm about to describe to you sticks in my head. And I, was, I saw dozens and dozens of these as, as a teenager. But in this one, there was a couple and the male soon-to-be husband expressed a fear of commitment, you know, a very sort of traditional, I don't know, and not particularly flattering view of men. And so they came up with this idea, exactly what you're talking about, that every year on their anniversary, they decide if they wanted to re-up for one more year, right? And so they did this and everything was fine. Then, you know, fast forward, they're sitting in a rocker, they put powder in their hair, they're, you know, older people, their anniversary. And she says to him, you know, after all these years, I think maybe we can just say, we're just going to stay married. And then he goes in the house, packs his bag as own leaves. (laughs) (laughs) That actually... We talk about that all the time, that the joy for me, this intense joy that I experience knowing 
that my partner is not owned by me to the degree that he could choose to exit the relationship in an amicable way because we've agreed that there is this this flexibility, knowing that instead he chooses every day to be with me brings me great joy. Now, that's not to say that it also doesn't come with some anxiety and worry. Of course it does. And this isn't, you know, it's not a simple path. And I don't think it's the only way to do relationships. But when I think about that story, I've, I've seen that episode. I know what you're talking about. There's something in there about the freedom to know that you could have, you could change, you could leave, you could, like just having that possibility can be enough to make it totally possible to forsake all others, to continue in the marriage. The flexibility can be key for some people. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I just I think it's very interesting that you're saying, okay, every year or every period that we agree to, we're going to reexamine and see if we still want to do it. I could see how that would make it really fresher and it's sort of an active conversation. We know we're going to have to have this conversation. So every day I am considering, whichever I you are, whether or not this still makes sense, whether or not I am taking this for granted and because it's not to be taken for granted. Yeah, that's a super important point. It's not just about do I want to stay? It's am I showing up fully? Am I in this relationship or am I just coasting? Because personally, coasting doesn't work for me on either side. But, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't times and there have been times. Um, My brother was um, terminally ill five years ago. And during that period of time, I did look at my partner and say, you know what? For the next period of time, we know he's going to pass. He's going to be living here with us. Let's just agree that we're not going to get into this. Like, even though it passes through the time when we would typically do our agreement, can we please put it off? So we delayed it for four months. And my brother passed and we took time to grieve. Once we were feeling safe and steady again, we had that conversation. Because it would have been heartless to say, oh, we have to be rigid about our flexibility agreement. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. No. (laughs) I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues on WVOX 1460 AM, where we play every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 and bring you the information and thoughtful dialogue that you need to divorce with dignity. If you've got any questions about your own divorce, please give us a call, 914-862-7487. And I'm talking today with Dr. Jolie Hamilton about non-monogamous relationships and divorce, but not necessarily divorce. And so uh, what do you think it takes to have these negotiations, these difficult conversations that don't drive you further apart? Oh, yeah. Well, we really have to start with a foundation of shared values. There's got to be some kind of shared ground that we're having these conversations from. Because most of the time, if the conversation is difficult, you could imagine it's sort of like standing on two separate islands and trying to holler across to each other. What we really want to find is at least some place that we can get in our boats and row to that's a shared space. For some people, that'll be a certain commitment to, say, raising a family together. Or for some people, it will be that commitment to their faith or to a particular philosophy. Whatever that shared value is, that's a great place to just keep coming back to as you're having a difficult conversation. So let's say you're, you're getting into something that's going to be a tricky area for you. Maybe you're talking about sex or you're talking about money, some of the big stuff. When you have some shared ground to come back to, it means you don't have to just stay in that muck. 
you can take a break and come back to, hey, let's check in about some things that we agree on, too, because this conversation is not the totality of our relationship. And that's the mistake we make. We think that because this urgent thing right in front of us, because it's got us by the, a chokehold and we want to talk and we have to get this conversation figured out, we forget that we can just slow down and see that this conversation is part of a whole relationship. And that whole relationship has places where we agree and we get along as well, or we at least want the same things. We want some, some shared future together. And that makes all kinds of conversations possible. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you think are some of the barriers that come up to those kinds of conversation? I mean, where is it that people really get stuck in talking yeah. about an unconventional relationship? Yeah, well, one of the troubles, like I mentioned earlier, is that often people will neglect bringing up these little inklings they have, these ideas, or they see a, they see a TV show or something and they think, oh, non-monogamy, what's that all about? They have some curiosity and they set it aside out of fear or out of, oh, I don't want to rock the boat or whatever. And they, they set it aside, they set it aside. Or perhaps they are in a mixed orientation marriage. Maybe, maybe they, they don't exactly share the same proclivities for sexual contact. Or maybe they have a certain desire that they want to act on. But what happens is they, they just keep not having those little conversations along the way might have even started way back when they were dating if they had been bold enough to just bring that stuff forward. And instead, they wait until there's this, uh, an elephant in the room. And that elephant is often a specific other person that I want to have a relationship with. And now, now this thing that could have been an idea that was talked through in a sort of a slightly removed philosophical way and how might we do this and what does it look like to live outside the traditional boilerplate monogamy that we are offered by the culture? What would that look like? It, instead, now it has a name, a face, and it feels like a threat. Well, and I know this I lived it. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what are the kinds of people who are intrigued and interested in non-monogamous relationships? You know, that's interesting. We have some data on this. We know that, for instance, when we talk about non-monogamy, let's be clear, since we know that there is a vast amount of cheating going on, we know that there is non-monogamy that's not consensual all over the right. place. But then when we look at more specifically at people who are doing this consensually, meaning that everybody involved knows what's going on, that there's more than two partners, well, the numbers tell us that about 5% of people are interested and in participating in this in some way in America and Canada. And then about 20% of people have tried it at some point in their life. That's the same number of people who play musical instruments. So it's not a small number of people. But wow. the type of people who, yeah, right? It's, it's not, you know, when I first entered non-monogamy, I was told that this never works. This never works. And something that finally clicked for me is if people are saying this never works, they know something about this. It's just a conversation we're not having. So the kind of people who are interested, well, you know, they might look like just your everyday person. I look like a soccer mom. I drive a huge van. I have seven children. I live in a suburban neighborhood. And no one would suspect a thing except I happen to be out about my non-monogamy. On the other hand, there are some people who are really clear that they want to be in this 
lifestyle. And my research, my doctoral research, turned up that there are at least a few ways that people find themselves here. One is people who they fall in love with more than one person. They do it over and over again from the time they're teenagers. And so they're just behaviorally like this is just what they do. And they might be seen as maybe more adventurous or very sexually engaged. They might be. But there are also people who simply choose this lifestyle because they feel like they're not interested in adhering to typical rules. They, they tend to be edge pushers and, and rule breakers and rebels. And that's not that they want to hurt other people. It's just that they tend to be people who don't want to follow a standard set of rules. They want something custom. They want something really unique to them. And that usually looks like some kind of freedom, freedom to explore. But that doesn't always mean sex. Sometimes it's as simple as flirting is allowed or people are engaging in fantasy lives or kink dynamics that are more creative and outside of that, again, that standard issue, monogamy. That's interesting. I mean, I'm reminded of the, I'm sure you're familiar with the show Big Love that was you know, yeah. very popular a number of years ago. What are your comments about that in terms of being reflective of what this could look like? Yeah, so Big Love is an interesting show to think about. And there are, are quite a few media representations at this point. Big Love pictures something called polygamy. And in that, we're talking about a very specific sort of design that has a religious connotation. There's a very specific, like, there's one man and there are multiple women and there's a hierarchy of those women within the setup. So while that might work for some people, in practice, what I see in my coaching practice and in my work and research, more people these days tend to be interested in a, in a more even dynamic where there's less sort of standard sexual biases around gender and more freedom to explore multiple dynamics and, and dynamics that aren't necessarily like heteronormative. So they don't necessarily look like they would in Big Love, but there was one thing that I thought that they did well in that show, and that was over and over again, when the characters finally made breakthroughs in their own development, it was because they had conversations. They finally said the unsaid. They could have solved the whole thing if they'd all started talking in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really a, a great observation. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues here on WVX 1460 every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 and also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and on the podcast website, divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Dr. Jolie Hamilton about non-monogamous relationships and divorce. And I'm sure, uh, Dr. Hamilton, that there are people who are interested in learning more about you and more about this who are listening. So how can they find out more? Yeah, if you're interested in this, I would encourage people to hop on over to my website and grab. I actually have a couple of free downloads that people can grab right on my, my main page, JolieHamilton.com, J-O-L-I, Hamilton, like the musical, nice and easy. And there, there are some descriptions about conversations, actual guided conversations that you can have if you're looking to to explore what your relationship could be if you had those harder conversations. Great. So help us understand what the difference is between creative monogamy and what most people think of as monogamous marriage. Yeah, it's about actually having a set of a real set of conversations to describe what our monogamy is going to look like. Because 
it's actually always up to us where those lines are. With monogamy, what we usually are talking about is we have agreed to exclusivity in certain areas of our life. But when I ask people to describe, for instance, you know, how their friendships are, do they have only one other friend? Most people say, no, why would I have only one other friend? That doesn't make any sense. But when I ask them to describe their romantic life, they're like, well, I can only have one romantic person. So creative monogamy is really about starting to describe your monogamy really specifically so that you understand where those lines are so that you treat your romantic relationships like you do your friendships, where you have conversations about what the expectations are and where you can stretch into maybe some edgier areas, some more experimental areas, and where you are absolutely not open to stretching into some experimental areas. So there's clarity and real explicit agreement. I think that's really great advice for people to be talking about what their expectations and assumptions are and what might be implicitly underneath the surface and the relationship making it explicit. I think that would really help a lot of people. And I encourage people when they come in for prenuptial agreements to be thinking and talking about these kinds of things, maybe not so much about monogamy, although I'll think about that, but really about money and working and some of the other things that we discussed earlier. Jolie Hamilton, I've heard about people having more open type marriages where they have rules like, oh, they can only have intercourse or you know sexual relations with one with the same person one time and never in the marital bed. I mean, are there are those kinds of typical things that people put into place as guardrails in this kind of circumstance? Yeah, so that's an interesting way to talk about it because, in fact, a lot of times people try to guard their monogamy with a set of rules that are very specific about ways that we can behave. I tend to encourage people instead to start making flexible values-based agreements that encourage each other to continue to have conversations. Because when we rely on a rule, well, rules beg to be broken. And if if you've ever been in a relationship where there was never a rule broken, well, I'd love to talk to you because that would be remarkable. So when we talk about like a rule, like, for instance, you can only have sex with someone one time or you can only um, see people outside of a certain radius of our home. It's not that those things are inherently bad. It's that then it gives us a way to start really being like micromanaging about what is happening in our relationship. And so I would rather encourage conversations as the situation evolves over the course of hopefully years and years of fun and happiness and allowing those conversations to keep happening so that you're making decisions based on your shared values, like we said, and on what's true for you now, instead of asking an agreement to hold for decades. That's great. And just in our last minute or two, how would you define the success of a relationship? Oh, goodness. That is, oh, my favorite question. Monogamy tends to define the success of a relationship by longevity. That is its marker, right? It's why we all ooh and ah over a 50th wedding anniversary. And that's great, but I've been to lots of those anniversary parties where the two people aren't even holding hands because they can no longer stand each other. I prefer to look at relationships, their ability to gracefully transition into whatever their next phase is as a real success. That makes 
A tremendous amount of sense. Dr. Jolie Hamilton, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and talk about your views on non-monogamy and creative monogamy. Thank you so much for being our guest on Divorce Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Catherine. And one more time, where can people find your contact information? You can find me at JolieHamilton.com. That's J-O-L-I Hamilton, just like musical. All right. Thanks so much.